Good afternoon. Uh, this is The Big Ten on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. Today I'm uh, your host, Luke Fowler. I'm here with my co-hosts, Jen Schneider and Jacqueline Kettler uh, from the School of Public Service at Boise State. Um, and today we got a, a couple of interesting stories to talk about. Um, I mean, just when you thought it might finally be a slow, normal news week... Just some Supreme Court appointments. Uh-huh. So I, I got to say, as like doing the show, it makes it so much easier that our political times are completely insane because it <laughs> makes it so much easier to find stuff for us to talk about. Like We don't really have to struggle. No. Right. You just go to like CNN or Fox News and pick whatever the top story is, and it's plenty to talk about. Uh, but uh, I think we're going to start with a local story. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Jackie for her, her to introduce this for us. Yeah, and so for any of you who have been trying to renew your driver's license in the last few <laughs> weeks, you may have noticed an issue in which the um, the driver's license office um, has been closed uh, or was closed for, for a while with computer blackouts, um, that the system wasn't working, and so they had to just shut up. Um, their door shut their doors and not let anyone in. Um, so literally, years. it's not just the DMV being annoying or having long lines, which is what we all expect anyway. They literally were not open. Right. They were closed mm-hmm. for several days. They are now back open, but of course have very long lines as they try to go through this backlog of people that need to renew their driver's licenses. So this sounds like sort of a everyday story where you just have computers that aren't working. Is there something more to it? Like why the computers weren't working or what's so, what's going on? So there was a system upgrade earlier this month in which the drivers, the DMV closed for a couple days to, you know, up upgrade to this new system and then once they open back up for the following week it became clear there were issues and then I guess the system just started blacking out like just shutting down um so there's that just you know if anyone for people upset with local government often the DMV is going to be the place that they're upset with anyways right because mm-hmm. there's lines there's frustrations um, but now you have like it's just closed they was closed there for a while Also, that's a really interesting thing to think about. Like most people, their interactions with the government are going to be through sort of their day-to-day lived experiences. So is there traffic on State Street? Uh, Is the... Uh, is it easy to pay my taxes through the IRS? And can I just get my driver's mm-hmm. license renewed? So, Luke, you're somebody who stubborn, stu- studies the bureaucracy, stubbornly studies the bureaucracy <laughs> a lot. Uh, yes, I will admit, one, that I am stubborn. Uh, and two, <laughs> uh, but I mean, this is an interesting uh, kind of thing to, to pick out in this story, right? Is that most Americans, like, we interact with government in interesting ways. And as much as we will talk about, you know, environmental protection or economic, like we never really see that part. Like what we see is the parts, you know, the simple stuff, right? The basic stuff. But that's the stuff that's the most frustrating when it doesn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and as I, I tell my students on a regular basis, like you will never be, like the bureaucracy will never be on the front page for doing a really good job. Mm-hmm. They're only on the front page of the paper when you do a really terrible job. When something breaks, like the computer, like the DMV system, that's when it makes the front uh, front page. But the DMV will never be on there for like, oh, timely service, right? Mm-hmm. That's not a story anybody's interested in. So this, I think, highlights you know one of those issues where can the government ever really get recognized for doing a a good job or do we only really care about it when it does a bad job 
Yeah. Well, and I mean, there's also some interesting jurisdictional issues here in that it's the sheriff's office that actually carries out the driver's license process, um, which is quite unusual. We're only one of two states that have that. In most places, it's the transportation department um, that takes care of that. So the sheriff's office hasn't liked been cri- being criticized about it because they don't even want to be doing this in the first place. So now they're trying to push to get it taken, you know, for for the ITD to take it back over. So, um, Luke, one of the concepts that we think about in public policy and, and administration is the idea of street level bureaucrats. Does that play in here? So th- those are the people that you might interact with on a on a day to day basis. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that plays in, in well here. And for anybody who's been to the DMV um, is never a fun process. I don't think anybody ever walks away and goes, oh, that was a great day. But I definitely think the level of customer service you get um, um, impacts exactly how frustrated you get with that process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was interesting. I was reading one of the articles in, in the paper in this and looking at reading some of the statements that were made. And a lot of people were referring to like customers and moving through. But it was I thought it was interesting in itself that for the sheriff's department to think of these people as customers, because that's got to mm-hmm. be so out of organizational culture mm-hmm. for them, because when are there any other inter- uh, interactions for a sheriff's department where they're dealing with customers, right? And I put that in quotes for our viewers <laughs> on the radio. Um, when they're dealing with customers, right? They're dealing with <laughs> victims. They're dealing with citizens. They're dealing with I've been a customer on the side of the road a few times yeah, <laughs> yeah. on a road trip, so you know how that feels. But, I mean, like, this is the only chance where they might refer to as customers. So that's got to be an interesting aspect of this. And I'm sure mm-hmm. that's one reason that sheriffs don't want to deal with this because – they are dealing with customers and citizens. They're not like, I'm sure that criticism's coming from victims or, or you know, uh, suspects, all these types of things to the criminal justice system are, are something they're used to. But for customers to go, you're not serving us the way that we want to, and we're mad, we want our money back. They're like, well, we don't know what to deal with this. Like, how do we, how do we grasp with this, right? So th- I think there's a good question here about whether this is or should be part of the mission of the sheriff's department and whether this is a state task or a local one. What would be involved in changing the jurisdiction? Jurisdictions. I'm putting you both on the spot. Do you have any idea if you wanted to take something out of the sheriff's office and put it at the at the state level? Uh, well, one, I have no idea, but that never stops me from a- a- answering questions. Pontificate away. <laughs> yes, uh, I can speculate. Uh, I'd imagine first, like it would probably take the state legislature getting involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the big question is. Of course, the Idaho Department of Transportation has a workforce, but they certainly don't have a workforce to take over all of these shops. Mm -hmm. So one, you would talk about a huge shift in workforce um, Mm -hmm. from going from working from counties to going working for the state. And that's a pretty big process Mm -hmm. in itself. Um, And that's not a like a, a flip a switch like the operations part of this can might be able to be transferred fairly easily. They're totally different employment systems, too, right? Exactly. So. Whether that means like re- or hiring a whole lot of people or transitioning these people, I mean, that in itself, you're talking about a huge shift in organization. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, also, as much as the, the sheriff's department might be upset about this, what you're also going to be talking about is a huge shift in budget mm-hmm. and employees. Mm-hmm. Um, as we know, any good self-rational bureaucrat uh, wants to maximize their utility through bigger budgets and more employees and a bigger fiefdom over policy. Right. Um, they want more control. And so this gives them that, though they might not always be happy with what that looks like. Jackie, do we have a sense of what's next? Are the kinks worked out and our driver's license is coming out? Yeah, I mean, it seems to be at least they continue to be open and and, and trying to clear that backlog. Um, but we'll see, right? Like if there are major 
system issues, they may pop back up or continue. And this rift has already been kind of created now or magnified from what was before. So I imagine you're going to continue to see some jurisdictional issues or complaints. Well, and I think that kind of piggybacks on some things we've talked about previously in this show, right, is how uh, there's been issues that have gone at the state and local level, particularly with the, the Treasure Valley and some of the local governments here heading in a different direction than maybe some of the local governments in other parts of the states. And that just emerging conflict between the state and lo- the local and what's going on mm-hmm. there. And I believe there's still at least one county in Idaho that thinks it's going to try to secede from the state. Um, and so that, that just this kind of stuff just compounds those those relationships and those makes tensions. them more difficult. <laughs> Well, you heard it here. If you can wait a few weeks to legally uh, get your driver's license updated, you might want to do that. Let those lines die down. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the uh, Supreme Court hearings happening in the nation's capital. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Trey McIntyre from Trey McIntyre Project. You're listening to Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 and 93.5 FM, Caldwell and Boise. Community radio for Boise and beyond. You're back on Radio Boise, and this is The Big Tent uh, with Luke Fowler, Jackie Kettler, and uh, Jen Schneider. And uh, we're going to pick up our discussion with the uh, Supreme Court nominee nomination hearings of Brett Kavanaugh uh, that have been going on this week. Um, and we talked about a couple of weeks ago with our, our colleague, Co- uh, Corey Cook, uh, about, you know, how this should just sail through. And there's not really going to be, you know, much of a question whether this gets passed. And I don't think there still is a question about whether yeah. or not Kavanaugh gets confirmed. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it hasn't been an exciting week. <laughs> um, a lot of theater, a lot of drama. Uh, so it started off on Monday with protesters getting arrested in the Senate chamber. So that's always exciting stuff. Um, and then the, and let's just say some of those protesters were uh, had the white hoods and the red dresses on. What, for, what's the uh, Margaret Atwood? would show the um, the handmaid's tale they were dressed up like characters from that sort of to uh, make a comment about kavanaugh's approach to roe v wade i assume yeah Uh, so interesting protests there yeah so people are getting pretty excited about this even though as we we've talked about i mean kavanaugh is a pretty middle of the road candidate uh Depend, like, compared to who Trump could have picked. Um, <laughs> He's a pretty solid conservative candidate, right? Yeah, it's pretty not really surprising. There's nothing really to get excited about in, in any way about him. So uh, there's there's been two big points of drama that have come out of this, at least when you get past the protesters. One is that there is a huge cache of documents, thousands of pages that were pr- produced under the Bush administration when Kavanaugh was part of it, that have been labeled confidential. Uh, and what they mean by confidential is that the Senate committee here uh, members, the senators, can read these uh, these documents, but they can't be released to the public. Um, and so there's been a big push about what's in these documents, whether and why they can't be shared. Well, and how late they were released too, mm-hmm. right? Some were just released on Sunday, and some still being released this week. So uh, in a rather dramatic, um, some might say melodramatic uh, exchange today, uh, Cory Booker uh, took it upon himself. Who's to re- Cory Booker? Uh, the senator from New Jersey who may or may not be running for president, which some of his Senate colleagues uh, called him out on <laughs> uh, as part of this drama, uh, decided that he was going to release some of these documents, um, namely uh, about some conversations around abortion and, and racial profiling, which again, if you read the uh, Kavanaugh's you know, stance on these things, were fairly mundane. Like He wasn't on the right wrong side of any of these issues, but it was... His, his stance is pretty mundane, you mean? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's nothing particularly exciting, nothing that would change, like shift public opinion about this, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you look at the uh, the, the racial profiling uh, mm-hmm. emails, and his argument is that the Bush administration should be racial, racially neutral on all of these things, mm-hmm. where you go, oh, wait, doesn't this help his argument and not hurt him? Mm-hmm. But they still seem to... And so kind of the, the 
two big questions uh, surrounding this are why was why was the Republican administration trying to hold back these documents and why did Democratic senators think that they really needed to be released? Mm -hmm. Um, The other source of drama associated with all of this is Kavanaugh's stance on presidential power. Um, And there's been a lot of pushback from both the left and the right on this, Um, namely because Kavanaugh, I I mean, even some of his early legal opinions have said that uh, the president couldn't be legally investigated, right? Um, And based on this president, whether or not he, as a sitting Supreme Court justice, is willing to push back on presidential power Mm -hmm. um, and what that means. So my question to my two co-hosts is, (laughs) what do you think is the uh, more interesting or more important, you know, uh, subplot of these entire uh, hearings the the document issue or the the presidential power issue i don't think the political theater aspects are too surprising i mean all of this is happening against the backdrop of you know mitch mcconnell's refusal to to put forth merrick garland who was president obama's uh, pick uh, for the supreme court and so i think the democrats feel like they have um really an obligation at least to show to their base that they're uh, putting up a fight for a nominee and that he at least should get the same treatment that they felt like their nominee got. So I think a lot of the angst over the documents and a lot of the sort of grilling of this particular nominee is is show for, for the base. Um, as you said, I don't think anybody feels like the nomination's really going to get blocked, but I think the, those Democrats have to show up and, and show that they at least put up a fight. Yeah, and I think, you know, the presidential power question is an interesting one because we have seen the presidency really increase its powers in the last couple decades. And this is concerning to people in both the Democratic and Republican Party. And so you do, and of course, some of the senators um, on the com- on the committee are a little bit more critical, Trump-like Flake, just Senator Flake, versus others that are more kind of have, have not been so critical, but all of them seem pretty interested in some of these questions and how can we kind of move power back, you know, like not continue to consolidate power in the presidency. And just to clarify what's at issue here is that if, for example, the Mueller investigation um, reveals that the president engaged in, I don't know, criminal behavior, let's say, and we have a sort of constitutional crisis, um, that sort of decision could go to the Supreme Mm -hmm. Court. And if you have um, a nominee who was appointed by this president and who is known for saying, actually, the Supreme Court shouldn't check presidential power, that's what we're talking about here, right, in Mm -hmm. terms of folks like Flake, who's been an outspoken critic of Trump, being concerned about that. And I also point out that uh, when Kavanaugh was originally announced, uh, Newt Gingrich made a very uh, ominous comment along these lines saying that, oh, this is all part of Trump's bigger plan. Um, having Kavanaugh, which was Wait, t- like a twelve-dimensional dimes- chess move. Like, yeah, I don't. I, 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 like huh. everybody was like, "What is this guy talking about?" But and I'm not saying this is part of it, but he made a very ominous comment along those lines and, and implying that Kavanaugh's presence on the Supreme Court might affect the Mueller investigation somewhere down the line. But you know, it's also uh, I guess important to remind. Uh, listeners that Supreme Court nominations are not for four years, they're not for 10 years, they're for life. And Kavanaugh's a relatively young guy. I think he's 53, 54. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I mean, there's a good possibility that he served for at least 20 years. I mean, possibly 30 or 40 years if he has the longevity of people like John Paul Stevens, right? I mean, so this isn't about shaping presidential power, legal opinions during the rest of the next few years, but possibly over the next several decades. Um, and I, I think, uh, Jen, you're one, somebody that pointed it out earlier. Um, this isn't replacing another conservative member. This is compa- replacing the swing vote on the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. So this could have pretty big Im- implications over the long term. That said, it feels like an overreach to me to sort of say that um, President Trump planned this in order to protect himself. I mean, I think it's much more likely that White House counsel Don McGahn and others have been very intentional. We know that the Federalist Society has been very involved in putting together lists of nominees that would be viable and also, um, you know, past conservative smell tests. So it seems to me like he checks all the boxes in that regard. I don't see a a big conspiracy here. Um, That said, I do understand why people are concerned about the presidential power issue. And um, that is something that we are going to return to after the break. Right. When we uh, when we come back. Yeah. And I mean, uh, of course. uh, And so I think I I think you're right. Um, There's a lot of melodrama surrounding this that really amounts to not a lot, um, which is for better or for worse. I think it's it's a lot of people posturing. And again, I I think uh, Cory Booker got called out as possibly running a for doing this as part of a presidential run. Um, But. You're also right in our last segment. Uh, we're going to talk about, you know, if Trump, this was part of his master plan, <laughs> would he actually be able to achieve that? Because there might be a secret cabal working against him within the administration, um, according to a New York Times op-ed. Um, but I think we're going to uh, take a break and pick up with that story in a few minutes. Hi, I'm Werner Herzog from Bavaria, and you're listening to KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise, community radio for Boise and beyond. Hey there, you're listening to The Big Tent. Uh, I am your host, Jen Schneider, and I'm here with my co-host, Luke Fowler and Jackie Kettler. Today, we've talked about the DMV. We've talked about the nomination hearings for uh, Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. And we are going to finish by talking about an anonymous op-ed that was published yesterday in the New York Times. And I'll just read the headline and actually the subhead because they're they're pretty juicy. So the headline is, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. And under that, it it reads, I work for the president, but like-minded colleagues and I have vowed to thwart parts of his agenda and his worst inclinations. So I have to say I was in my office uh, answering emails yesterday afternoon, and my co-host Luke sent me the link to this editorial and said, you should... You should look at this. And I literally gasped <laughs> when I saw it, not not because of the editorial itself, but because I originally thought that it was an editorial by QAnon. And so if you've been following the news lately, you know that QAnon is sort of this Twitter personality who, who claims to have Q clearance and is working inside the administration with Trump and with the deep state, um, the national security apparatus to sort of uh, keep the United States safe and who publishes publishes these really cryptic tweets um, and it are it's pretty uh, bizarre uh, a scenario there uh, but I was wrong uh, it wasn't about QAnon it was about somebody who claims to be inside the administration and who claims to be undermining 
the president and his, if not his policy agenda, at least trying to contain his worse, uh, worser behavioral impulses. So I read it and I gasped again because this is so extraordinary. So I guess the first thing I want to talk about um, before we even talk about the content of the editorial is how remarkable it is that the New York Times published an anonymous editorial. Do you guys have thoughts about what that might mean or why that's significant? Well, I I think there's a couple of interesting points here. And I think there's a, a big ethical question from the New York Times, um, right? If it's ethical for them to publish something this big that hasn't been fact-checked from somebody that, and put it anonymously so the reader has no idea who this comes from, right? And you can read the editorials, the editor's comments about like, oh, they confirmed and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, for all seriousness. I mean, they did like, confirm that it's a senior White House official. I mean, we but, know that. This could be but a, it didn't get fact checked because it wasn't it didn't wasn't published by the news side of the house. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so what does senior White House official mean? I mean, this could be a, the senior janitor. I mean, uh, and maybe that's that's <laughs> being funny or facetious a little bit. But I mean, this could be one person that's working with like-minded colleagues with two other his secretaries. Like, uh, there's no way for us to know actually how much of this is based in fact, how extensive this is. I think there's a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of room for people's imagination to run here mm-hmm. without actually knowing how much of this is true. And I think that's kind of a dangerous thing for the New York Times to do. So I agree it's dangerous, but I might push back a little and, and say that I don't know that the New York Times would have staked their reputation on publishing this if it was from a janitor or secretary. Not that there's anything wrong with janitors and secretaries, but I, I am guessing that it is a senior staffer yeah. or they wouldn't have gone out on a limb like this. I think what bothers me more is that it, it really could put the reputation of the newspaper on the line at a time when it's already under a great deal of attack. So, um, you know, editorials, they ha- you have your name on an editorial because you're willing to defend what you have said. And so I think there's been a lot of arguments, a lot of hot takes on this editorial today saying that it's sort of cowardly um, to not put your name on it. I mean, you can understand why they didn't. They would obviously lose their job immediately. Um, but there's an element of, of sort of uh, bravado in the piece and cowardice. And it feels like the New York Times maybe is giving them cover for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think... But, you know, at the same time, you can totally understand why The New York Times also would have published it, because all of us have read it this week. It's been shared widely. It's been discussed by all the other media sources. Um, And it does kind of fit other things we've heard from, you know, like leaks and things from the White House, from within the White House. So it's not like any of this is completely unprecedented. Like, we've kind of had indications something's been going on. I do think it's interesting that whoever wrote this makes sure to clarify they're not part of like the left-wing resistance. Yeah, we're not in the resistance, capital T, capital R. Yeah, <laughs> don't don't get confused. I, I mean, it's so interesting, though, that it, it does use this conspiracy theory language, Luke, which I think is what your comment was getting at. So just to read a little bit from it said, um, many. this is why, so Trump threatening the health of the republic is why many Trump appointees have vowed to do what we can to preserve our democratic institutions while thwarting Mr. Trump's more misguided impulses until he is out of office. So for me, I have like this Hollywood film picture in my head of like all of them gathered around uh candles and like saying a vow to the republic <laughs> that they're going to undermine or contain this president. I mean, it is really kind of bizarre. Yeah. 
and again, uh, you talked about QAnon earlier, but I mean, this type of stuff is what fuels mm-hmm. people buying into that. Because I mean, this this writer is essentially saying there's a conspiracy inside of the White House, a shadow government, and that is insane on so mm-hmm. many levels. One that that would legitimately exist, and two for them to write it and put it in these terms. But you're right; it's very Hollywood esque. It's something that would come out of a movie. But I think there's a lot of ethical questions here because, I mean, none of these people are uh, are elected. They're all appointed. And I think the three of us, um, I don't want to go out on a limb and speak for my co-host, none of us particularly like Trump. None of us voted for Trump. Um, but I will say, like, I think it's kind of wrong for a bunch of people to undermine an elected official like this and not even give him a chance to be successful. And uh, it comes out that a lot of the criticisms that have gone against the Trump administration haven't necessarily been policy focused as much as they've been about his just complete ineptitude to lead the organization of the White House. And so the question is, if these people were actually to get behind Trump, would this administration be successful? Um, And I think that's kind of a, a big ethical question that we need to be asking as well. Well, they try to walk that line, though, don't they? I mean, they defend many of his policy victories, Mm -hmm. the tax cuts, for example, the bolstering of the American military. Um, They claim those as policy victories for the administration, but they're very careful to to sort of isolate Trump the man from the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And they even say at one point, astute observers have noted that while um, President Trump might Uh, praise somebody like Vladimir Putin in public, we as an administration have made uh, very clear that sanctions are a sort of consequence of Russian actions, right? So it does imply that there's a like um, uh, somebody out front who's doing things that are unpredictable and difficult and hard to contain. And then that there's an administration that's actually getting these things done. So I think you know, to follow up on your comment, Luke, if they got behind Trump, it's hard to see how they would actually be more effective if he is indeed as erratic as they say. Maybe the the policy victories are only a result of this shadow government. They seem to be claiming that. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know to me that I, but saying we want to protect the institutional norms and uphold, like make sure things work well, doesn't necessarily sound like a conspiracy to me. Like maybe they are, you know, undermining Trump the person, but also like protecting against, you know, the whims of one person, which every administration may have that balance, right? Like a chief of staff and people are always kind of going, all right, well, that's not necessarily such a good idea idea and here's why um but maybe this maybe president trump's just acting differently which is causing it to be more hidden or quieter than normal but i'll say isn't that kind of why people voted for trump was because he was different he was supposed to break this apart and make things so all they're saying is and i mean i I guess you can read this and go oh wait that we're never going to get changed because these people won't allow it to happen. And whether that's true or not, you definitely just fueled another generation of conspiracy theorists that will trust our government mm-hmm. less, mm-hmm. right, because of this that has happened. And, I mean, if nothing else, if you're going to do that behind closed doors, do it. But writing this this editorial has just caused a lot of people to lose their faith in our government in a lot of different ways. And, I mean, that's what's really dangerous here is because there is particularly conservative Americans that are just going to disengage from the process. And then we're just going to lead to more polarization and more violence and more of these things that are unhealthy ways to interact. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think what I heard you saying, Jackie, though, is that 
um, sort of our government was set up to uh, preserve institutions mm -hmm. and to make them robust right. to individuals, right? Of course, individuals have agency and can take action and can change things. But the reason our republic has sort of endured for as long as mm -hmm. it has, even in the face of things like the Great Depression and Civil oil war. shocks and wars, is because the institutions themselves uh, seem to be fairly robust. Um, and so that would be a different way of viewing this editorial is that this person is simply saying, look, the institutions are solid and we're protecting them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, regardless of what this, this uh, particular leader is doing. I think your argument is equally convincing that it then <laughs> creates this sense that uh, we don't know who's really leading us. Yeah. And I think this is just going to underline a divide going forward, particularly in the next election. And what what's really going on in that White House and whether or not this is a good or bad thing. And so, I mean, the polarization is just going to increase from here. Well, you can easily find that editorial online, but we will also make sure to post it on our Twitter account and on Facebook at Big Tent Radio. We hope that you will follow us there on Twitter and on Facebook. And we hope you'll join us again next week here at the Big Tent uh, at Radio Boise.